Welcome to episode 21 of Heavy Strategy. The questions are often more interesting than the answers. Today's episode will highlight that because we don't have any answers. We just have some provocative questions. We talk a lot about micro-segmentation in the network, preventing uh, lateral movement in the network when we talk about IT security. And that's a big thing. The assumption is that the, the attacker is going to, to breach your perimeter and therefore the next most important thing you can do after defending the perimeter is to contain them in some way through micro-segmentation or detection of lateral movement, monitoring for lateral movement, and preventing them from moving laterally. If you're looking at an IT security budget, which is more important, prevention or containment, is there an emphasis? Is it 50-50? Is it 30-70? Is it 70-30? And then that got me thinking about consequences. If you're talking about prevention, your consequence is if you don't lock the doors, then the insurance won't pay you out because you didn't take steps to protect your assets from, right? So you have to take reasonable steps to gain cyber insurance or to be able to stay to your customers. We protected our assets to some, right? But if you get to containment, there's an angle here that is a social or a societal angle where, and, and now we're drawing a very long bow here, where justice and law enforcement comes in, or one way to prevent or contain cybersecurity is that justice through law enforcement. That is, if you commit a crime, the police and the legal system will pursue you, capture you, and then you will be punished according to the law and the society. And yet with cybersecurity, we don't seem to be getting suitable activity from law enforcement, and therefore a key part of the containment cycle might be missing. Does that make sense? That absolutely makes sense. And I'll just reiterate just because I think it's an incredibly important point. At, you know, at the high level, one of the questions you're asking is what percentage of the cybersecurity budget should go to prevention versus containment? And I would, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about the fact that Nemertius likes to use the metric mean total time to contain, actually, excuse me, median total time to contain, because the assumption is you will get breached. So the only good measure of how effective your cybersecurity is, well, not the only, but the preeminent measure is how quickly you can contain. So that would seem to argue for the importance of containment over prevention. But that said, I want to push on another little thing. You, you raised two kind of provocative things, the prevention versus containment. But the other one is the notion that law enforcement isn't really affecting, effectively enforcing the laws. Can you connect the dots between those two thoughts? It's like this is really not tech, but it is mm-hmm. tech, right? Because if but you it's can, strategic. It's, it's important. strategic. If you can rely on the justice system to provide a suitable disincentive, then you don't actually have to pay, your budget doesn't have to pay for uh, activity because the, 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 the ability of cyber act, you know, of a threat actor to come in and attack you is much reduced if there was less of them because they were being caught and punished in some way, whether that's financially or with jail or some sort of restrictions placed upon them by the society that they're in. At some point, we'll have to touch on the nation state you know, if you're going to talk about justice and law enforcement, you have to start talking about nation state actors. That's what I'm planning to bring up next. Yeah. Prevention versus containment discussion is actually an important one and one that CISOs should really think about and should discuss with their CEOs from a strategic perspective. The, the drum that I've been beating over the past couple of years is kind of two, 
the increase in attacks by actual nation states. And this is going to continue and the attacks are going to get worse. One of my colleagues likes to point out that we're moving away from the notion of relatively benign ransomware, which is I'm going to lock up your systems until you pay me, or I'm going to freeze your systems because I want you to stop functioning as an act of cyber war and going to move directly to, I am going to destroy your systems so Mm. that they are piles of junk, which is also an act of cyber war. But the reason I'm highlighting the cyber war is that the role of the federal government, regardless of what country you're in, changes. Because if you treat cybersecurity as a criminal act, then everything you just said applies. You know, it's up to the police to to catch the bad guy and punish the bad guy and take steps to make sure the bad guy can't hurt the rest of society. And it's also up to you to do the basic things like lock your doors, lock your windows, don't, you know, don't make yourself an easy target. Obviously, crime is crime, even if your doors are unlocked. But come on, everybody, let's be reasonable. However, my contention is that's actually the, the wrong mindset for nation state attacks because they are, in fact, acts of war. If you think about the government's role in war, it is not to bring the perpetrators to justice according to the legal system. It is to counterattack and to attack preemptively if necessary. You know, if somebody bombs you, you don't take them to jail, you bomb them back, which means launching a cyber attack or equivalent right yeah. back at them so that they, they learn. And the point I would make is one of the CISOs that I work with said, you know, Jonna, I don't need the federal government to sit here and tell me cybersecurity standards and regulations. I'm way ahead of the federal government on understanding the limits of the technology and what I can and can't do and what's effective. I'm good there. What I need them to do is start striking back when there are acts of war. The challenge with striking back in cybersecurity, of course, is attribution. Like That's we, what makes it such a brilliant weapon. There's a, a piece of research out at the moment stating that North Korea earned 2 to $4 billion in cyber theft last year, mainly through cryptocurrency. Yeah, $2 billion, which represents 4% of their GDP. So technically, cryptocurrency is actually funding North Korea's nuclear program. That's kind of nice to know. And yeah. I'm justifying the fact that I haven't invested in cryptocurrency <laughs> because that that's why. I just yeah. learned it this second. If you needed a motivation other than it's burning the planet, like heating the planet just by burning electricity for no net, net gain to society at this time. So I think what you're alluding to there is that there's two types of attackers. There's criminal attackers who are doing f- attacking for money. Let's pretend that the number of people who are hacking for YOLO, just for the funds, Let's assume that that is now at some limited level. As the money comes on the table, the ability of doing malicious hacking just for funds disappears because the money be- takes over. But what we are looking at is political attacks versus criminal attacks. So criminal attacks are doing it for extortion and for money. But what you're also alluding to is political attacks or, as you say, low-grade cyber war where we know, for example, that Russia and China or US and Europe are all hacking each other endlessly. Well, not actually, and that's part of the problem. It's only very recently, as in last year, that the United States even allowed its cyber teams to attack back. I have the story that uh, one of my clients told me many years ago when the nation state attackers were first happening. This person discovered that his systems were under attack, so he secured the systems and then launched a counterattack at the attackers. You know, he was up all night doing all this and managed to successfully, you know, crash their systems. And when the boss came in in the morning, he said, yeah, we were attacked. I managed to secure our systems and I counterattacked. 
and he got fired because mm. he was told the United States doesn't do that. That's a crime. Now, the good news is he went across the street and got rehired for twice the, tw twice the salary. <laughs> yeah. But that mindset of we don't counterattack because it's criminal, it's sort of like, well, we don't drop bombs on somebody who dropped bombs on us because that's criminal. That's the wrong mindset. And I do think that that mindset has implications. If you're listening to this and you're a CISO or you're planning to become a CISO, when Greg talks about prevention versus containment, question number one is how much of your budget should go to the one or the other. Mm. Question number two is let's inform that decision by talking about what kinds of attacks you're thinking about. And if the answer is crime, I would argue that probably you want to spend a little more of your budget on prevention because you need to you know, dot your I's and cross your T's to show that you're adequately protecting yourself against the criminals. But if you're thinking about nation state attacks, and that's becoming an increasing component of the threats and attacks, then that's where you want to start thinking about, number one, containment. Yeah. Number two, working with your political leaders to develop countrywide response and not simply relying on yourself, your industry and the local police. I guess what you're saying there is that criminal attack and nation state attacks from a corporate point of view are the, are the same thing. No, I'm arguing that they're actually fundamentally different, which is a, yeah. a bit artificial because a nation state attack can, in fact, also be a criminal attack. For example, ransomware, as is is one. But I'm, I'm arguing that they're fundamentally different because just just to put it in very simple terms, if you get attacked by a, a criminal, the cops are going to say, hey, lady, lock your door next time. I mean, we're, we'll still come out to your house, but lock your door next time. But if you get attacked by, you know, by a nation state, the army doesn't come to you and say, oh, hey, you know, get yourself a gun and a nuclear, yeah. you know, a shoulder mounted nuclear weapon to counterattack. They take the responsibility yeah, of actually You have to reach out to the CIA or GCHQ and attempt. Yeah, but but even then, the CIA is not authorized to counterattack right now, and that's the that's the main point. Well, they, is that they are beginning. They They're beginning, but yeah. that's so. So that's why if you're the CISO and you need to be lobbying, just to take the United States, lobbying Washington to say. Don't give me more NIST cybersecurity standards. That's all well and good. But by the time you create the standards, they're five years old. There's a few challenges with um, attack back. Let's call it attack back for the sake of right. better. One is attribution. You have to be have a very high level yep. of confidence. And the second one is that when you attack back, you actually generally burn your surprise, right? So if you're going to use zero days or various hacking tools to take out a, a, a threat actor, you actually then lose the ability to use those tools. So it's a bit like, so you don't want to attack back at every opportunity because you don't have an inexhaustible supply of cyber weapons, right? And once they're used, there is a, some substantial chance that they get recognized and the vulnerabilities get closed and, you know, then you can't use them again and you have to develop a new I think that's weapon, absolutely right? true. But the, the catch, the caveat here is that the U in this case is the military or equivalent country yeah. level resource. As a, you know, as a CISO at an enterprise or a large organization, that's not your problem. Your problem right. is to make sure that they know that this is that this is a nation state attack and that they can formulate the right appropriate you know now you're just into basic warfare once again do you give up the element of surprise for the enemy you know which which yeah. uh, which weapons do you use what formation do you use it in and guess what the military is supposed to be pretty good at this stuff so let and how much it of out. the nation state attacks is actually industrial espionage so we've had persistent reports for a decade 
of China and Russia ransacking universities for research and using that to then start com companies in their own countries, which can then monetize those businesses and boost their own economies, right? Which, and ultimately the goal there is to, by boosting the internal economy, you get access to the technology, but you also get access to an, an economy that can fund and grow, not just a civil society, but also fund the military, right? Actually an excellent point. I just yeah. want to highlight something because I've made the point again and again to my clients that, you know, you may think that you're relatively secure from nation state attacks if you're not a critical industry or in the defense aerospace industry, but actually universities, as you pointed out, anyone that is has advanced manufacturing techniques, drug manufacturers, basically anyone, even think tanks, yeah. for exactly the reasons you're saying. So don't assume that because of your industry, you're secure. It's not that yep. you're secure, but that you're not a target, right? Right, you're, not a target. Yeah, exactly, uh, yes. Your ability to be targeted is not necessarily determined by, and industrial espionage doesn't necessarily happen from a corporate competitor. It can be a foreign state actor attempting to capture secrets about your business for negotiation. If they can get access to your email and then feed it to their own competitors, if a Chinese company has inside information on a US company, they can use that in business negotiations to improve leverage, right? It can be as simple as Or your absolute favorite topic here, uh, supply chain, because mm -hmm. you may think you have nothing of value, but you're a key piece in the supply chain to someone who does. And all of a sudden, industrial espionage in your space, it can lead to, you know, planting all kinds of bugs and bombs and supply chains for mm -hmm. somebody else's space. You, you may not be aware of where you are on the supply chain because you just don't think of it that way. You know, you're raising an excellent point because there's kind of two issues with nation state. One is the question of attribution, because yeah. the brilliance of nation state attacks is that the nation state can claim complete ignorance, even if they're funding, you know, even if they're funding the attackers, they even can literally if, say, I had no idea this was happening. It's not oh. me. It's my rogue people. Yeah, the, who the Vladimir to... Putin. Oh, right. Ex no, exactly. we didn't do that. How could we, we didn't do that? Some random criminal who yeah. happens to be Russian did that. Yes. Yeah. And uh -huh. everybody, right. and you know, wink, wink, nod, nod. Exactly. So that's uh, one challenge. And the other challenge is what do you call a nation state attack? Is industrial espionage an attack? And I think these are these are exactly the kinds of things that I would pressure CISOs to raise in Washington or capitals of countries mm. to say, look, we have to take an intelligent, sophisticated so, yeah, look at so this. So should, should companies be participating in industry bodies that then flow up? As, Honest... as CISOs, should you be a member of the manufacturing, you know, whatever it is that you're, you know, if you're a consulting company, should you be a member of your country's consulting body? to go back to government and say, we need help with cybersecurity or something? Is that? No, I would say, I would say like the ISACAs in the United States, for example. So the cybersecurity specific bodies are the ones you want to be part of. And only I would select your participation based on yeah, see, the level of energy of the, and activity that the, they have with But lobbying. that's not going to change anything, right? Cybersecurity people chatting to other cybersecurity doesn't just keeps them in well, the club. But and, that's that's what I was that's what I just was yeah. finishing saying when you were starting to jump in I'm sorry. is you have to make sure that the 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 group that you're joining is one that has an active and and energetic interaction with with the politicians and actually has gets heard. You don't want to just join a club where everybody's going peer to peer yip yap as you for yeah. all the reasons you just or one raised. that's full of you vendors join... trying to promote yeah. a product and you know somebody's trying to monetize exactly. Monetize exactly. people's attention through some sort of thing. You want to be in a body that's moving the needle. Um, and if you're a very large company, you may consider just skipping the organization altogether and go directly to Washington again in the United States. 
Um, because if you're a Fortune 50 company and you walk in front of Congress and say, I need you guys to rethink how you're handling nation state attacks, you will get listened to. Greg, you or I will, wouldn't if we were the CISO of a Fortune 50 company. Yeah, you know, I don't or, know. You know, some sort yeah, exactly. of you know, Rolls Royce or whatever. You could knock on the door of the government and say, you know, we need to, there would be a way to say, exactly. we need help or we want to work together or, you know, is there some way to join us? It's specifically not, we need help with nation state attacks and, and don't give us more regulations. Let's sit together and plan what kind of strategy we can use that starts with asking all the hard questions. You know, what do we call a nation state attack? What do we do in the case of ambiguous attribution, which is usually the case? And by the way, my personal feeling is, uh, look, if they're your citizens, it's your problem. We're okay. holding you accountable. Let Which, of course, could get the United States into all sorts of troubles. But yeah. Let me jag left a little bit. What about the ability sure. of law enforcement to gather evidence sufficient for a court? So the sort of evidence that you need for a cyber case is substantial. And a lot of the existing legal systems are not well suited. There's not a lot of pre-existing law. There's not a lot of an applying existing or previous case law is actually quite difficult. And you might always be forging into new spaces, which you might be fronting up against a judge for whom a computer is a printed out email. And then, of course, so, you've got the judgment system, like the actual legal system, but you've also got law enforcement and its ability to have appropriate skills to recognize a cyber, you know, a cyber incident and to do something about it. So I'd like to detangle two issues because you raised mm. two really interesting issues. The first one is the legal definition of what constitutes a crime. And we'll talk about that in a second, but I wanna to go to the one you raised first. One of the things that I would strongly recommend for cybersecurity professionals is to have automated uh, auditing and logging. And there are a lot of tools that give you this. So the instant you, know, the instant you invoke your incident response process, your IRP, um, there are a lot of tools that keep track of exactly what got done, where, how, and then what that does is that actually creates a, an airtight uh, audited record of what you did, what you found, what you did, and in if it looks like it was a crime, captures exactly the state of everything without you having to stop in the middle of the incident response and try to document everything, which is actually a big reason that it's hard to gather that information. And then what you hand over to law enforcement is literally everything all the proof that you have of what the incident was what systems it affected uh what's yeah, but, you, you know, know then everything to, that you've been able to to uh, reverse I, engineer and all the steps you took i feel for the police though because you actually have to have a system which can ingest all that data has to keep it separate from all the other data you have to be able to say to a court of law that the evidence can't be tampered with that's you know, what that's what i'm saying is those tools actually exist particularly the evidence not being tampered with yeah, mm. um they put a lot of time and energy into developing these tools so that so that you can actually prove okay. a secure uh chain of custody for example mm. um so it's so it's worth looking at automated tools that have those capabilities i'm not saying it's perfect but it's actually gotten so the other challenge here is that it's expensive Generally, well, there's that. You yes. know, police forces are very focused on low cost activities. And... Well, yeah, the, the, but this this isn't a tool that the police would use. This is the tool that you use internally in your okay, organization yeah, yeah. as part of your incident response so it's up policy. To you. So what you're saying there's, and then you provide you... that exactly. And when you provide it to the police, it is rock solid chain of custody of 
everything that happened. So it's not like a like a TV series where the policeman goes and gathers all the evidence and picks exactly. up the gun casing off the ground with a pencil and says, aha, I found the missing piece. It's up to you to gather the evidence and present it to <clears throat> law enforcement. Exactly. Right. And because... law enforcement, by the way, has also gotten a lot more sophisticated in the past um, past decade or so. Just side note, not everybody thinks police work is glamorous, but for those who do, sometimes people who are kind of nerdy assume they'll never get, you know, they, they aren't valuable. And it turns out they're super valuable and police forces, you know, at all levels are snapping them up. So the level of cyber sophistication has gone way up. But I want to circle back to the thing we put on the shelf, which is the whole question of, gee, you may actually prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that somebody came in and compromised your systems, but have a really hard time turning that into any crime because the laws are so antiquated that they don't even recognize the notion of an electronic system. We're still and using that's computer a, misuse acts from the mid mid eighties. Exactly, exactly. Actually, that gets back to the whole lobbying and lawmaking because if you're at a large enough organization, you need to change these laws. But the gotcha is, and this is an ongoing active discussion, if you start passing laws that make sense, uh, attacking a company with the goal of compromising its systems is a felony. Then you've suddenly eliminated all pen testing. Oops. I've just had a major realization, really, at the end of the day here. Your company's IT infrastructure and tools and software is actually the scene of the crime. Yes, absolutely. It and very much is. Yes. So this really right means that it. in the event of some criminal action or that requires law enforcement, you have to collect the evidence because you're, you are the scene of the crime. Absolutely. It's not like the investigator can go out the back and to the scene of the shooting and start looking for evidence as to who stood where and like they do in the movies, right? It's very much of a, of a forensic, just like and like and your your where you work, the job you do, is the scene of the crime. I wonder how many people have realized that or thought about it in that context. You, you know, Greg, that's an excellent point because th- you know that was intuitive to me back when we started preparing IRPs a, a decade and a half ago for our clients. Mm. Um, but I don't know that I ever stopped to state it that way. And I think without stating that, it becomes, it's not clear why you need these automated tools yeah. and why you need to have such a structured incident response policy because, you know, your your environment is going to get handed over to either the military or the police, depending on who attacked, as the scene of a crime is going to get gone through for details on what the nature of the crime the nature of the criminals, you know, and whether and maybe even making the decision of who should handle it. So that really helps. So if we come back to the opening comment, prevention versus containment, you need to prevent the crime from happening and you need to take reasonable steps. You want to contain the impact of the crime, but you also need to take into the fact that you are you are the scene of the crime. Your infrastructure, your app, your technology is the scene of the crime and you're on the hook for the evidence collection. So it's not just prevention versus containment. It's also proof. In the event that you need to engage law enforcement, you can hand them sufficient proof to act and to defend you know, your reputation or to defend your revenues and to defend your insurance policy. That's not yeah. something, I, like I've always thought prevention, containment, that's pretty much it. Forensic evidence is also now a key part. Like it used to be a big thing. We used to talk a lot about seam and collecting evidence at forensic grade and so we could do an audit after the fact. But it wasn't so much because you were the scene of the crime, it was so that you could trace what happened. Yep. It's either a crime or an act of war. And either way, you have to capture that information mm-hmm. and you have to 
lobby the powers that be to treat to take a sophisticated look at crime or a sophisticated look at cyber uh, cyber warfare either one you know in both cases they're still stuck 20 30 years ago with definitions that don't make sense we in i say industry but you know at least non-government have an awful lot of work to do here to educate the government on how to take a proper response whether it's a criminal response or a military mm. response or both and containment also limits the scene of the crime right which is a good thing because it's better not to be the scene of a crime but nonetheless if the crime can well, only happen in a certain part of your infrastructure then you can more easily know where the crime happened and but that's where things like honeypots have suddenly gotten a resurgence because Canaries, you can actually, yeah. yeah, you can knock, lock everybody into a nice little cage and let them go do their nefarious things and say, if this were real data, we would have been toast and still, <laughs> still, if the laws are up to date, convict them. I don't know if we got any answers, but we asked a lot of questions. <laughs> Absolutely. And hopefully we've uh, succeeded in causing you to think about cybersecurity in slightly different ways than you might have before you listen to us. Well, on that note, thanks very much for listening to Heavy Strategy today. If you've enjoyed this, please do tell your friends or uh, share it on social media. It helps us to keep doing this. Our goal is to try and build the show a little up over time and have a bunch of people listening to us. Got any follow-up? Don't hesitate to go to packetpushers.net slash FU. You can send us your follow-ups and tell us what you really think. You can follow us on the Twitter as at Packet Pushes. You can find Jonah on LinkedIn. Just search her up as Jonah Till Johnson, J-O-H-N-A. And of course, I'm Greg Farrow. You can find me at Ethereal Mind on Twitter and all over the internet. Thanks so much for listening to Heavy Strategy, and we'll see you in a couple uh, in the next show.